0: This is Extraordinary, a podcast where we have an honest chat and a good laugh about what it's like to live with a disability. Woo! You'll hear about the unique challenges we encounter, the funny situations we face, and learn what it's like to be in our shoes. I'm your host, Oliver Hunter. I'm a stand-up comedian who actually can't stand up, and I've been cracking jokes about living with a disability for years. Today, we're chatting to Perry Cross the founder of the Perry Cross Foundation, an organisation working to find a cure for paralysis. After sustaining an injury at 19, Perry was left a C2 ventilated quadriplegic. In this episode, you hear about the work his foundation does, Perry's passion for accessible spaces, and the time Perry met Superman. Let's get into it. The first question I've got for you is, what would you like people to know about you? Just a bit of background for a
1: listener. I grew up in the mid-north coast of New South Wales. I was a pretty um, sort of average kid just running around. Long story short, moved to the Gold Coast. When I was in my early years and went to school on the Gold Coast and not long after I left school on the Goldie, I was playing a rugby union game in Brisbane. I was injured in a rugby union tackle and I broke my neck. So I'm now ventilated C2, quadriplegic, which means I can't feel anything below my chin, I can't move anything above my neck. And I'm basically reliant on a ventilator to breathe. So I'm on life support. So back then life was pretty normal. And then I'll suddenly you have this huge injury in your life, spinal cord injury, and then life changes pretty quickly. You uh, have to come to terms with that situation, learn to deal with it and learn to cope with it.
0: I've got a disability as well, but I got cerebral palsy and it wasn't something I had to acquire. Life hadn't had a dramatic change for me. It always was just, I just knew it from the start. To follow up on that, do you remember much of the accident of the tackle? Yeah,
1: that's the really strange thing about acquiring a disability is that something like a spinal cord injury, a lot of people live through the trauma. So you're actually conscious and aware and awake going through this really horrific experience that's going to change the rest of your life. It's emotionally very difficult to deal with, not just for you, but also your family or your loved ones and also the people that experience it with you. I was with my mates playing footy when it happened and a lot of my mates still remember that day very vividly. It's still a scar for all of us. But we don't try to look back on it with any bad sort of doom and gloom. We, Everyone seemed to have gotten on with their lives and moved forward from it.
0: I guess that's another interesting point about you, the friends and family aspect going through it. Sometimes, again, when, to try and relate some of my experiences, when you go through, like I've had surgeries and other procedures, when it's you, like as the person going through it or the patient or whatever you want to call it, sometimes that's the easiest part I've found because you just deal with it. It's so true. Yeah, I think just to follow up again, and my question is about that through your rehab and recovery and that Quite traumatic experiences, as you said. Was there a time where you think you were helping your friends and family through it, even though you were experiencing it? Did that role kind of reverse, where you were the one talking and supporting them through it? Yeah, you, know, you go through so many emotions, and especially early on, like in the early days, the very early
1: weeks and months, the emotional roller coaster. You experience every emotion multiple times because you're just going through this massive um, trauma. And some days you're up and feeling good and positive, and then other days you're not. So you sort of needed to bounce, bounce off each other. And I, have, I was lucky that some of my mates were consistent in their support. They would come in almost every day and see me in hospital and, you know, see me to the point where I got home. And then so that helped my wife immensely. I mean, I'm never be thankful enough to those people my family were the same, you know. My mum would come and visit every day. My grandmother would make meals instead of eating hospital food. All these sort of things that made such a difference to your life, but in the long term, it paid off.
0: Yeah, especially that hospital food, mate. The hospital food's real average. Yeah, definitely. It's handy to have a grandmother just bringing in. What sort of food was she sort of operating with? What was she bringing in?
1: Good old roast meat and roast veggies.
0: Ah, oh, can't get yeah, wrong. Amazing, yeah. Yeah, I'm starving, just thinking about it. Yeah, definitely love it. Before your accident, how old were you again, just to confirm? Yeah, I was 19. So for the first 19 years of your life, as you said, you were a very active, short attention span kid that was always running around and doing stuff with your siblings and your family. What did independence mean to you for that first part of your life before your accident? You look back
1: and you think, gee, how lucky you know to have a life where you've experienced the freedom to life. So I'm very grateful for it. And I guess you have that period where you're sort of at home with your parents and then that period where you leave home, you're an adult, you've got a job. And I was in that sort of period of my life for a short moment and they're all different feelings and I guess you have to try and recreate it in a way that it means more to you. Like So back then it was just simple things of spending time with friends and going out when you wanted to having independence, driving a vehicle, having your own house to live in, all those sort of fun things, but then you lose that. And now I suppose it's about, okay, well, what what can I do to make my own independence in the form that I can do best? So recreating that as best possible, getting your own place, getting your own vehicle, getting back into those independent things that we used to have.
0: What does that look like for you now? You've, you've had many years to adapt and adjust to the, your new life. How long did that take and what sort of process did you have to go through to get, I guess, to where you are today?
1: I guess the first thing I did was um, I discovered that I didn't have many skills to offer, in a sense. I wasn't educated in the tertiary education. didn't have any crazy skills to sort of offer the world, you could say. So for me, it was about going to university, getting a solid education, getting some skills under my belt. And I think education is the first thing for everyone, for all of us, you, me and your listeners, all need a good, solid sort of education behind us. And the reality of life is you never stop learning. You know, every day you learn something new and we should always sort of be exposing ourselves to new things and looking at new things. So um, always be learning and then getting a job was the other thing that sort of helped me get a leg up in life was having having an occupation that I enjoyed, that was fun, that was me. I wasn't doing something I didn't love. I was you know, fundraising and helping to find a cure for paralysis. So all those things sort of led to more and more and you know bigger and better
0: and I guess that leads you into the next question, and you've led me in beautifully there. So, can you tell me about your foundation, the Perry Cross Foundation, and, and the sort of work that you've been doing for many years? You've already touched on it briefly there, but you could you yeah, just go into more detail if you wouldn't mind? I set up the
1: Perry Cross Spinal Research Foundation because I knew that we needed to fund medical research to cure paralysis, because paralysis, they say, is like the holy grail of medicine in some ways, because If you can repair the spinal cord, you can basically repair or understand a lot about the human body. It will allow us to do other things bigger and better than just the spinal cord, potentially the brain and things like cancer and all these sort of other things that our bodies, we don't understand about our bodies. So investing in medical research to me was an obvious one and it wasn't something I had a background in. It wasn't something I knew much about. I was the worst science student in my grade at school, you know. Um, I was I was not impressed by science, but I was impressed by the fact that if we raised enough money to fund enough good research, and there just happened to be some good research happening in our, in our area, that it was worth funding. And that's been my main driver for the last 20-odd years. Amazing work,
0: because it is. It's a, a life-changing event for so many people, that acquiring a spinal cord injury, and, and to continue to work on that to hopefully find a cure or at least make some great progress would be life-changing for so many people. And We both
1: have disabilities and I guess it's not about me and us so much. It's more about future generations and your investing in technology and stuff that allows us to create industry and create jobs and invest in an industry that is probably and hopefully good for our state, our country. It's not just about trying to repair pericross the spinal cord. That's my attitude towards it. It's about betterment of medical research in general for everyone.
0: As soon as you're looking out for others and working to help others, and I think that's some of the work I've done as well, it would be great that we wouldn't have to do, do some of the advocacy work that we've done and, and the standing up and speaking out. But sometimes you just got to sit back and go, you know, someone's got to do it. And if I don't do it, who will? And, and you do it for the people that can't do it.
1: That's exactly it too, Oliver. Like, and it could be anyone in any industry and in any walk of life. If you don't do it, then who else is going to? You can't just sit back and wait for other people to do the things that you want to see happen in the world. You've got to be the one to make the change, to bite the bullet, to get do the early mornings and the, the hard yards to make the changes.
0: Yeah, exactly right. And don't get me wrong, there have been days when I've done that sort of work and you sit back sometimes at the end of the day, you go, well, gee, it would be handy if someone else could could just come in and snuck in and done this bit of work. And I would... But, you know, that's it. You've got someone just got to put your hand up and go, I'll be the one, more one of many. You mentioned that after your accident, you change your attitude about getting educated and going into the work you're doing now. I've been, been at with in a chair with a disability, and that was only a few years ago. So you had this life-changing event and change of life over 20 years ago. What were the challenges there with like, the practical or physical challenges of going in? University and living a life as a person with a spinal cord.
1: I was the first person in Australia to attend a university on life support. And I went to all my classes, all my shoots, all the lectures. I was fortunate in many ways. I attended Bond University on the Gold Coast, and Bond University was only built in the late 80s. Like many other universities in Australia that were built probably early 20th centuries, the accessibility and the accommodating features had improved by the way. 80s, 90s by the time I was attending university. So I was lucky in many respects that way. But the technology back then was a lot different. So a lot of notes weren't computerised. weren't You had to load, take a lot of physical notes still. So I was fortunate that I had a really supportive group of lecturers and tutors around me that would accommodate for my needs and an understanding university that said, "What we're going to help facilitate you attending university in the best way that we can to make this the best experience possible. And I guess maybe I was lucky there weren't many people in wheelchairs with me at university. There was maybe one or two other people I can think of who I still keep in touch with today, but it was pretty rare. So the, the uni were accommodating and I guess that gave me that sort of hope would get through. I was lucky to be able to study part-time instead of full-time and that sort of helped you know, with my time management. And then looking back now, the beauty of what we have now and technology and computers and Bluetooth and all these sort of things, because now you can operate computers with your wheelchair and you can do incredible things that would allow people in my situation to do things way easier. So I encourage everyone that's maybe listening to think about it if you think it might be too hard.
0: Yeah, especially, yeah, I, I can agree there too, especially if you have a disability and you're thinking, oh, can I go to uni? Can't I go to uni? Can I do this? The best thing you can do is at least start the conversation with the organisation, with yourself, with your friends or family, and just really try and understand how you can do things. I remember I had the same apprehensions when I att- was attending university, and, but I remember when I was 18, finished school 18, and I, I could have gone to uni in my hometown and lived lived at my parents place and done it that way one of my things was I'm moving away I'm getting out of my parents house I'm living independently and it was extremely difficult at times but that was one of my things I was like that's what I'm doing because I want to live a different life move to the beach I went to uni in Wollongong it was a great experience and so my thing that like the, the staff there I had especially one there was one or two lecturers and coordinators that I can think of that were particularly accommodating is there a individual or a couple of people that will always stick out to you in that time in your life? There's a number you know
1: there's people that sort of were very very supportive and it takes a the tribe in a way to help make these things possible and I gotta say I have an amazing group of people around me I've always been fortunate to have great friends and family to support me to do things and you've only got to sort of put your hand up and say I want to do this and you'll be surprised where the help comes from. You know, I didn't go into university thinking that I was going to get the support of lecturers and tutors. I wasn't thinking yeah. that was going on the cards. I was thinking it was going to be a lot harder. But you'll be surprised where the support and help will come from and people, so to speak, come out of the woodwork to want to help. So by we'll all means, throw yourself into whatever it is in life you want to do and you'll be surprised who supports you.
0: Has there been experiences, whether that be involved with your foundation or... Some of the other work you've been in, places you've been, where you sort of had to pinch yourself and it's like some of your experiences you go, wow, well, how is this? How have I ended up here? What's happening here? And this is because of the work.
1: When I was young, I was fortunate to, be able to travel and I was in the United States. I met Superman Actor. When I was a kid, it was Christopher Reeve. He had a similar spinal cord injury to me, he had a C2 ventilated, as a result of a horse riding accident. I was fortunate enough to meet with him. Those sort of moments where you I think, gee, this guy's well-connected Hollywood actor and but things that bring you together, some of the strangest things. At a high-level spinal cord injury that people survive is very uncommon to be on life support. There's only a handful of Australians in that situation. So it's very rare worldwide for him to take the time to share time and talk about medical research, just day-to-day life. All that sort of things was pretty incredible. It's a pinch yourself moment. And that, I look back now and it changed my outlook. And my motto in life now is everything is possible. And I think you've just got to have that attitude that it can be done, not it can't be done.
0: I agree a lot with everything is possible. You've got to just find a way. And I think sometimes, I mean, I've lost that vision sometimes with disability in some of my experiences, but when it really comes down to it, you find your people and, Find a way, I was lucky enough too, to have a super supportive family and friends my whole life, especially my family and siblings. And and it was just find a way. Like I always went on family holidays and all the outings, like they could have easily said, oh, it's too hard.
1: Yeah, I was just gonna add to that Oliver. There are two kinds of people in the world. There's disablers or enablers. I recommend that people look for the enablers in life, people that are gonna help you get places, do things, But the other thing is, and this is another important thing for people, is that you've got to be willing to do it. You can't just sit back and wait for it to happen in life. And you've got to be prepared to have a go. And you've got to be prepared to bite off more than you can chew in life. Unless you do that, you're only disabling yourself. So no excuses.
0: Where do you think we're sort of at at the moment with disability? And what would be an attitude or idea that you'd like to see change? Or do you think we're... I'm progressing in the right direction.
1: The biggest change in my life has been the NDIS. Prior to the NDIS, life was very, very sort of ho-hum in the sense that you were able to do things but not really encouraged. You were only as good as the environment around you. But now with the NDIS, we've been allowed to receive the supports we need to be able to do the things we need to do in life. And that extends not just from day-to-day supports and daily activity supports, but also housing and accommodation. So there's been big changes in that area, but we're still not quite there. You know, the NDIS has bipartisan support from our governments, but the government has to sort of almost, and forgive me for saying this, but get out of the way. They're in the way trying to dictate mm. how things should be done and the way things should be done. And unless you've got... Really close lived experience with profound disabilities and severe disabilities. You, you really have no idea what goes on. And Mm -hmm. some of the people you work with in the industry have really no idea, which is a shame. But the intentions are there. We're getting there. We're getting better. And I'm just encouraging everyone I talk to in the sector to stay focused and positive, because the um, platform and the Structure behind the NDIS is brilliant. Just
0: don't mess it up. I found that too with, with my own experience with the NDIS. It's sometimes there is still this disconnect where some of the big decisions are being made by people with outlived experience. And I'm not also saying that everyone that works for the NDIS and the NDIA has to have a disability, has to have a... But if you don't have a, you know, like you said, a close-knit experience, that's where you've to touched on your point before. Everyone's got to keep learning and keep educating themselves and open their minds and eyes up to people with disability because when it comes to disability, we're the ones that know.
1: At the end of the day, uh, all the NDIS is not there just to look after people. It's there to encourage people to live a better life. And I think that might have been lost in some of the translation when the scheme was rolled out, is that don't just support us to stay alive. I'm grateful that I'm being kept alive. Yes but don't just support me to stay alive. Enable me to live a productive, fruitful life. And I think everyone with a disability Mm -hmm. would agree with that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So you're the CEO of Accessible Homes. I wonder if you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so
1: Accessible Homes Australia was only established about three or four years ago now. We're only new and inside the NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme. And the SDA is basically to provide housing for people with high physical support needs or robust sort of housing needs. To paint a picture for people, it's, I live in an SVA house that has wider doorways and hallways, more circulation space in the kitchens, the bathrooms, the bedrooms, and fully set up with assistive technology that allows for voice control for me to operate air conditionings Lights, blinds, TV, anything more or less that's an electrical device I can control, just using my mouth. There's someone who doesn't move, anything apart from my mouth. It's pretty handy.
0: So <laughs> It's pretty handy to have ever to work with your mouth. You know, I have seen some of those SDA resources and features and it's quite amazing what we can do when we really sort of put heads together and put in the front of our minds what the access needs. For too long, wheelchair users
1: all over the world have been forgotten about. We don't have a, a built environment that supports people in wheelchairs. We're, we're sort of getting there, and, but housing, definitely not. You know, you can still build a house today that's not accessible. And I don't know what the world will look like in years to come, but at least with the SDA, we'll have some accessible accommodation That will be a legacy for future generations.
0: And I think as well, an important point there is if you cater for the minority, so if you cater for people with disabilities with the access, you cater for the majority. There is a stat here, over 80% of people at some point in their life will experience some form of disability. I don't know if that's correct, so we may not put that in. That universal design and that access in mind, even if you don't have any experience of disability, when you build, if people are building houses or building new businesses or... Any sort of building, we have in the forefront of our mind universal design and access for everyone. But there, you cater for the minority, you cater for the majority. So to touch on your point there, the physical environment, it comes back to me for that social model of disability, being the disability ourselves, so your spinal cord injury, my cerebral palsy, that's not the problem. It's the environment around us, the attitudes of some groups and people. It's the physical access problems I still run into all the time with, you know, getting around Melbourne and bars and pubs and venues, and while wow, it is frustrating, we have made some progress.
1: You and I are worried about getting access to the nearest pub, but people out there that don't know us, or and Dylan Alcott being Australian of the Year has been a blessing for us. He uses the word unconscious bias. Some people don't even think we can drink alcohol, let alone get access to a pub, and that's sometimes pretty disappointing is that There's not enough awareness in our community, not just around access, but there's this unconscious bias that people just expect. We can't do that, so don't worry about
0: it. When I was growing up in the early 20s and started going out with mates and stuff, there'd be, you know, we'd be out drinking at the pubs and whatever in my hometown where I grew up, and and they'd be, oh, we're going to go to this place, and it'd be a nightclub that's not accessible. I'd go, I can't go there, so I'm going to either go home or go to another venue. And they're like, oh, don't worry, you're not missing out on much. I hate that. I hate it. So, when I get the I oh, don't worry. You didn't miss much. I'm like, well, I want to know what I've missed. Like, I want to be able to leave, go to a venue, go, this sucks. I'm leaving. <laughs> like, <laughs> that. Yeah. That's it.
1: And that life is about experiences. And we don't want to be excluded from experiences. We want to be part of those experiences. That's what life's about.
0: And I often say to another one I tell people is, My parents and family—they were amazing when I was growing up because they gave me the experience and the opportunity to hate camping, because I went on all the camping trips and the family holidays, and because of that, I'm able to hate camping. Like I didn't miss out on it; I was able to not miss out and experience it. (laughs) Because of that, I now know that I hate camping, and I will always choose not to go now. Gotta be grateful
1: for them. Those things in life,
0: man. Exactly, and I think for whatever reason, if I wasn't able to access camping holidays we could be sitting back now is like mid-20s going what's camp like I feel like I've missed there, but I haven't missed out I know it's horrible and no <laughs> you mentioned some of the travel you've done since your accident when you caught up with Christopher Reeve the point I find fascinating is this was all done years and years ago when accessible features and wheelchair access and the attitudes of disability while we still think they need to be improved a lot Twenty years ago, fifteen years ago, they were well and truly. And what was it like for someone like you, who's on life support, to travel overseas to get on and off a plane? Like, what does that involve for you?
1: Well, imagine trying to access airlines and planes and all those sort of things. And like, in some ways, airline travel hasn't changed a great deal. And that's a whole other sort of subject. Back in the late or mid nineties, when I was starting to travel my doctors would say to me oh look there's no way you'd be able to travel just purely because of your physical health conditions the wheelchair the ventilator all these sort of things that people see as obstacles and excuses to say oh can't be done my attitude was different and I was like well I want to and I want to experience life as much as I can I want to travel world. I want to see things I want to meet people I want to live a good life so I um I came across a doctor that was supportive of signing my medical clearance documents, basically saying, you know, that you're you're fit to fly. I presented that to Qantas and Qantas, with a few hesitations, accepted that medical clearance. But that wasn't sort of the end of the story. I needed, because I was flying from Brisbane via Sydney to Los Angeles, and I had a ventilator that was powered by a battery, and back then ventilator battery technology was terrible external ventilator power would only last like an hour. So then you needed backup power. You couldn't plug your phones, people who didn't have phones, but you, you couldn't plug your mobile phone into the plane seat like you can these days. So there was no power in the seats of planes. We had to get Qantas engineering department to wire the power into the seat that I was going to sit in to travel from Australia to the US to power the ventilator. Wow. That was the major hurdle. That had to happen within a matter of an hour or so because a plane landed from Los Angeles, and as they do, they turn around and they go back. So when we arrived at the airport to get on the plane, there was technicians and engineers under my seat connecting power to the seat so that the ventilator would plug in and we'd be able to fly back across the Pacific. When I got to the US, I met Christopher Reeve. The first thing he said to me was, mate, how did you get here? And I said, well, look, we flew with some amazing help and understanding from some doctors and some quantum engineers and pilot and all these people that sort of took responsibility in helping me i was able to fly and so my small claim to fame in life is the fact that i'm the guy who taught superman how to fly again because after that christopher Reeve went on to travel and do some flying of his own
0: to me that is fascinating one because as you said they were hesitant with your medical clearance but then you got the medical clearance, you got all the paperwork filled out, which in the scheme of things, that's quite easy because you found a doctor that was able to back you in and back you up and show a bit of confidence and belief. And then for them to go, this is what we have to do. We have to power your life. And for them to do that, and especially back in the 90s. And at no extra expense. I mean, I've got to say
1: they're bloody incredible. There's technicians and the engineers to sort of do what they did. I don't know. In the scheme of challenges in the world, I don't know that it was that difficult. It was probably not. You know, who knows? But for them to go and ahead and have the fortitude, I suppose, of an airline to say, okay, well, this customer wants to do this, we're going to help them. But that's a life-changing experience for me. Like, if they'd have said, no, I'd have never met him. I'd have never done some of the things I've done. I'd never travelled to the places I've been to. I'm So quantitative without them knowing, probably been some of the biggest impact on my life.
0: Did you get in touch with some of the big bosses at Qantas and have you formed relationships there? They were definitely aware of what was happening. Word was getting around that we were doing.
1: And eventually Christopher Eve, with Qantas travelled back to Australia. So the favour was returned to Christopher Eve and he flew back here. So, and these days it's changed. Ventilators have better batteries. You can now plug a ventilator into the seat of the plane. We've evolved, but back in the day it was pretty dark. Pretty dark ages. <laughs>
0: yeah. But so now, like, to bring it up to date, you can ventilator could make an overseas flight on its own.
1: Yeah. And simple technology like phone technology, you just have a connector that plugs into any sort of power source and the world has changed a lot. So life-changing for me. You know, my wheelchair has Bluetooth. My ventilator's the same. It's all, everything's evolved, which has been really, really good to see.
0: And your chairs
1: is it battery-powered as well? Yeah. And just the fact that you can now drive a wheelchair for the whole day and half the night. Back in the early days when I had first had a wheelchair, you couldn't do that. You couldn't drive a wheelchair all day and all night. The batteries would have to be recharged at some point, which is basically like sitting around in a Tesla, charged to to a charging station waiting for it.
0: Back in the day, did you ever run out? Did you ever get stuck? Plenty of times I've run out.
1: Plenty of times my mates, my Dad, my brother, all, everyone's had a go up pushing me at some point and most often overseas because when you're traveling far and wide, you don't want to give up those experiences. And when the batteries go flat, there's no time to sit around and wait for your chair to charge. It's right, we're pushing because we're heading home in a day or two or, or whenever. So you just want to get into it.
0: Yeah, and pushing a big power chair like yours, I can imagine, wouldn't be a... 300 kilos of mean it. It's not light. Yeah, that's not right at all. I guess it's the rugby union boys though. They would have you or them had a bit of size about them.
1: I'm very grateful to the team of support workers I have working with me. Um, all ex-rugby players, all big blokes that sort of you know understand what life is like and how we need to cope with things and situations to get things done. So great people around me.
0: You mentioned them already that some of them they stuck through the whole thing. How do you think it changed? their lives, like other than seeing what you went through, they didn't even end up in the space with you, like the research space at the foundation. Strangely enough, the
1: board of directors of my foundation and some of the guys who work with me at accessible homes are all sort of former rugby or schoolmates. And yeah, I've been able to sort of maintain those relationships. And I guess because I've been such a, a strong voice and a strong advocate for spinal research medical research, accessible housing, they've been supportive and that involves forming organisations like the Research Foundation business like Accessible Homes. But it's about having a vision and someone's got to have that vision and not often do you find people with a vision. A lot of people just jump on that treadmill in life and just do whatever else is doing and trying to keep up. For whatever reason, I felt compelled to say this is what I want to do these are the changes want to make in life. And I encourage people to have that sort of attitude, that think big attitude. Don't just accept what it's like now. Think about the things we can do better. Think about the changes you can make in life. Think about the things that you would like to see improve. So I encourage everyone, whether you have a disability or not, to think bigger. My favourite motto in life is everything is possible.
0: That's a perfect spot to end it. Thanks for your time today, mate. I
1: appreciate you. Taking the time to have a chat. It's been great fun.
0: No worries, Perry. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming on. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and have a fascinating chat. Thank you. You've been listening to Extraordinary, a podcast where we have an honest chat and a good laugh about what it's like to live with a disability. This podcast is brought to you by Independence Australia. Independence Australia is a social enterprise providing choices and services to people living with a disability. To find out more about what we do, visit independenceaustralia.com.au. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Waylink Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Extraordinary, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show. I'm Oliver Hunter, and we'll be back next episode with another Extraordinary Conversation.